This new Bible study here on Ruth is entitled Ruth, a Woman of Worth. That is a line taken straight from chapter 3, verse 11. I have a lot to talk about that that line. We'll talk about it very soon. Uh, But Ruth is a woman of worth indeed. She's a fantastic character. This is a short book, only four chapters, but it is awesome. There's so much typology, so many connections to the overarching themes of salvation history. It's really, really great. So it's only going to be two lessons. We're going to introduce the book of Ruth with the usual practical stuff like title, authorship, dating, uh, placement in the canon is very, very interesting. There's a lot more theology when we discuss its placement in the canon uh, in Christian Bibles compared to Hebrew Bibles. There's some great stuff there. We're going to be looking, of course, at uh, big overarching themes and typology and things like that. So it's a good, it's a good hour well spent just setting the, sa- setting the stage, laying the foundation for this fantastic little book of Ruth. It's probably one of the happiest <laughs> books in the Old Testament, I think. Uh, it's not, it's not um, you know, cut and dry and like whoop-dee-doo, here's a love story of Ruth and Boaz. And there's, trust me, there's a lot going on here. And uh, it's, it's more uplifting than the Judges, right? We just finished the book of Judges, and that's a pretty depressing book for a lot of different reasons. Uh, there's a lot to learn from it, of course. It's very instructive as to why we should never Uh, turn away from God. We should reject the culture instead of embracing the culture and so on and so forth. Well, Ruth is a light spot in the darkness of the period of the judges. Okay. So with that, then let's just look briefly at some of these practical elements. Then I want to end the lesson on some of the more meaty, substantial, thematic, and typological uh, points because there's there's a lot of fun stuff there. So number one title, surprise, surprise, it's called Ruth. <laughs> That's the title of the book. Uh, Ruth comes from Hebrew Reuth. Uh, it's a play on the Hebrew word. Reuth means friendship. So Ruth's name means friendship or friendly, uh, different renditions depending on what you're reading. That's really beautiful. And you, you really get that as you read the book. She really lives up to her name, as everyone does. In the next lesson, as we go through the four chapters, and we explain the cast of characters, so to speak, in the story, I'll explain the meaning of everybody's names and how that applies. But she means friendship. In Greek and Latin, transliterate, there's no real changes. Like if you go back to uh, Numbers, right? The book of Numbers in Hebrew is Bemid Bar, in the wilderness. Uh, and it, it changes in the Greek and the Latin to Numbers. Uh, so there's none of that really here. It's just simply the name of the character Ruth. And so Ruth is the only book of the Old Testament that's named after a Gentile woman. And that little bit of trivia may not seem, it may seem trivial, right? That trivia seems trivial. It is not, I'm telling you. The fact that we have an, a book of the Bible named after a Gentile woman who comes from a very sinful people, that is hugely, hugely significant and very exciting as you understand that in the overarching themes of salvation history and God's uh, universal call to holiness for all people. So she has the claim to fame that she's the only, uh, she has the only book uh, named after her, after a Gentile woman, which is awesome. And then she's also one of only three books that's in the Bible that's named after a woman. So you've got Esther and Judith. Those are also books named after women and Ruth here. So a little bit of trivia for you. I think that's kind of interesting. Now, authorship and dating, uh, well, this there's not a lot to say about this, quite honestly, because it's truly an anonymous book. There's no consensus among scholars as to who wrote this. There's no consensus in tradition, Jewish or Christian tradition, as to who wrote this. Your Catholic study Bible will say that one Jewish tradition, one rabbinic tradition, ascribes it to the prophet Samuel. Uh, but then also, so Samuel, that would be in the 11th century B.C., 
Um, then also in terms of the concept of dating, well, if it start if it was started by Samuel in the 11th century BC, it wasn't finished by him. I think that much is certainly the case, and that really touches upon a theme when we talk about authorship and dating. And with a lot of these books, by and large, you have to understand that there is a a period, a, a mysterious period of authorship of multiple authors. You might have the initial author be Samuel, and then down the line you have other authors. That happens with a lot of books. Samuel didn't write, sit down and write Ruth as we have it today in our Bibles. It, it has this mysterious history of composition and editing and redaction, and we're totally fine with that. And that, I think that's a very balanced way to look at it. So here's a quote for, from your Hamilton book. He says, the most widely espoused date is during the reign of Solomon, that is in the later portion of the 10th century. So obviously, if uh, Samuel started it, and then in Solomon's reign, it continues, and then up into the period of the exile, that's all fine, right? But the main point is we have no consensus as to who wrote it, which means we have no consensus as to the dating of the writing. Um, but it very well may have started uh, with Samuel. You probably have various smaller forms of this great history of who Ruth is. And I think that's going to become really, really apparent after King David, right? After King David um, takes the throne and he is the greatest king of all of Israel, they're going to have people sitting down to talk about his ancestry. So, you know, Samuel probably, you know, wrote down a little bit of this stuff when he, he anoints David as king. And you got the whole shenanigans with David and Saul and, and Saul persecuting David and all this stuff. So, yeah, Samuel might have written some stuff down, but it becomes really evident that, wow, well, David's the greatest king. He's got this Davidic covenant, the Davidic kingdom. It's this empire of, of peace, certainly during this reign of Solomon. Uh, then you're going to want to talk about his ancestry. So I, that little, little bit right there tells us more about that it was probably after David's reign, although the origins were probably during his reign. Okay, so that's really all I want to say for authorship and dating. Placement in the canon. This is really, really interesting, and there's a lot more to say about this. Uh, then meets the eye because you got a lot of discussions, the placement of XYZ book in the canon. By the way, canon is not like ba-boom, canon. <laughs> canon B is really the table of contents. It is the, the official list of those inspired books that the Catholic Church determines is inspired as opposed to all the rest of the other books that were circulating in the Old Testament, well, intertestamental period, and then, of course, the New Testament period as well. You do need an authority, by the way, to determine what is canon, what's canonical, and what is not. Like, what makes the list and what fails to make the list. You do need an authority. That is another topic for another time. Well, in any case, the placement of Ruth in the canon is very fascinating, and there's some really beautiful theology with this. So there's two ways to look at it. First, in Christian Bibles, and this is following the tradition of the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uh, as well as the Latin Vulgate, uh, they are going to place it, obviously, after Judges and before the books of Samuel. And that's what we have now. You open up any Christian Bible of any denomination, and that's what you find. And that's, that's obvious because it's the hinge between these two stories. In fact, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, in the days when the judges ruled the land, there was a famine in the land, and it goes on to introduce the characters. So chapter 1, verse 1 tells us this occurred in the period of the judges. All right, And also, at the end of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about the Davidic Empire, right? Because that's a big, we'll talk about this more with the key themes, but one of the biggest themes here is pro-David um, explanation. I don't really like the word propaganda, but you know what I mean if I say propaganda. Marketing, call it PR, call it public relations if you want to, okay? So it's a very strong Davidic PR, okay? All right, so it says in, in chapter 4, verse 17, a son was born. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Okay, so you've got Ruth and uh, and Boaz here. They're in the lineage of David here, being their great grandfather. Rather, Obed is the great grandfather, I should say. Sorry, grandfather's Obed. Great grandfather would be Ruth. She's no grandmother. Okay, excuse me. And Boaz, the grandfather. All right, you're with me. So it is the hinge between these two stories. It takes place in the Judges, but then it sets the stage for what's going to happen with the Davidic uh, Empire. All right. So that's really awesome. That makes total sense. So chronologically, historically, Ruth follows Judges. Cool. All right. That makes sense. But the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Old Testament, well, they didn't really have an Old Testament, uh, but you know what I mean? The Hebrew scriptures, they do not place it after Judges, interestingly enough. Hebrew, Hebrew Bibles place it within the category of the writings, as known as the Ketuvim. Now, I've said this in other Bible studies, but in case you didn't catch this, the Hebrew scriptures are divided into three categories, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, okay? And that's abbreviated as Tanakh. You take the T, the N, and the K, put in some vowels, and you got the Tanakh. It's the, the way to remember these three major categories. The Torah is the five books of Moses, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, it's the Pentateuch, all right? Um, that's, the, that's the law. The Nevi'im are known as the prophets. Uh, the historical books, what we call historical books, are known for them as the former prophets. So that's significant. It kind of takes both categories into one. And then the Ketuvim are known as the writings or the wisdom literature. So you're going to put the Psalms in there, Job, uh, Solomon's trilogy. Uh, you're going to put in there with uh, the Song of Solomon and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and all of these books, Sirach. Okay, those are known as the writings. So the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, those are the three categories. Interestingly, Ruth falls in the Ketuvim, the category of the writings. And the, the, the question is why? Why not just throw it in with the former prophets, the historical books? Because there, there are actually two reasons for this. The first of which is because Ruth is one of five books that are used throughout the liturgical calendar. It's the annual liturgical calendar. you got different feasts, and five feasts... Um, require the reading of certain biblical books. By the way, this, these five books are known as the Megaloth. They're called the Festal Scrolls. So the Megaloth has these five books, and Ruth is one of them. So what I have broken down for you here in your notes, if you want to follow along, if you have them, if not, great, I'm going to read it to you right now. Ruth is read first at Pentecost. It's known as the Feast of Weeks. That's in April, May. And then just for completion here, just to explain this for you, it's pretty cool. So Ruth is number one. Song of Solomon is read at Passover. That's going to be March, April time frame. Ecclesiastes is read on the Feast of Tabernacles in September, October time frame. Lamentations is read on the ninth month of Ab, which is the temple destruction. That makes sense because you're lamenting the temple's destruction. And then Esther is read on the Feast of Purim because Purim is the... The, Esther is the origin story for the Feast of Purim, and that's going to be in, in March. All right, so Purim, by the way, means lots. So you got these five books, Ruth, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, and Esther. Interesting, by the way, that Esther is in this category, and she's not in the historical books either, because, again, she's one of these megaloth. All right, so why is Ruth read at Pentecost? Really, really quickly to explain this, some theories out there would be, that during the Feast of Pentecost, you have the conclusion of the, of the grain harvest, specifically the wheat harvest. You've got barley in early spring, wheat in late spring. And that is the context for the story of Ruth. If you had a chance to pre-read Ruth, or if you're going to read it with this Bible study, you're going to find out that there's the whole backdrop is in spring uh, in between the barley and the wheat harvests. 
And so the poor were allowed to, and I'll explain this more in the next lesson, but the poor, in fact, were, com- were allowed to, and it was commanded by law to let the poor glean some of the grain that had fallen in the harvest period. So that's what Ruth does. So it makes sense then that Ruth, who was this impoverished foreign woman, and she works really, really hard, she's industrious, and she's gathering up enough grain, gleaning grain for her and her her mother-in-law, that's read at the Feast of Pentecost. Also, Pentecost is, during Jesus' time, was known for and celebrated the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. So when Moses takes the Israelites through the Red Sea and the whole Exodus story, you get to Mount Sinai, and there's the giving of the law. Well, in Ruth's case, she was the one who accepted the law of Moses through her conversion. And so there's a celebration of that. And then finally, according to Jewish tradition, David was born and died on Pentecost. And so David is the descendant of Ruth. Uh, She's the great woman, uh, the great woman of worth. And so she celebrated there too. So there's various reasons why Ruth, the book of Ruth, is read by the Jews at the Feast of Pentecost. So that's one reason why it is in the Ketuvim, or the writings. There's another reason why it's there, and this I find so beautiful. It's really quite moving, and you see the theology of the placement in the canon. This is the reason why, just really quickly, parenthetically, you know, when we introduce new books, I like to spend an hour introducing them and going through all these things because you learn a lot. You know, a lot of people, they skip over, like, who cares about authorship and dating and, you know, placement in the canon or as it might be, or the structure. They, they teach you things. They really do. So, yes, you might want to hastily get into chapter one, verse one, and let's move on with the story. But if you understand the bigger picture and you understand that there is a theology within the structure of the book, there is a, there are literary devices being employed at the macro level of the book. And even here, the placement of the canon, you learn a lot. So uh, I just wanted to say that parenthetically, but in proof of that point, let's look at this next point of why is Ruth in the Ketuvim. So Ruth is the embodiment in the Old Testament, of the righteous woman or the righteous bride in the wisdom literature. So the Ketuvim is the wisdom literature, and if you had a chance to read it, one of the themes that you're going to see is that a wisdom is uh, personified by, she's called Lady Wisdom, is what she's called. And uh, the, young, the young Israelite man, the young Jew, is supposed to go pursue Lady Wisdom and not Lady Folly, and all of these types of themes. Well, Ruth is the embodiment of Lady Wisdom in two different ways, and this is really cool. So let me read this quote here for you, and then I'll explain what it means. It says here, Ruth typically follows Proverbs. Get that. Ruth typically follows Proverbs and precedes the Song of Solomon in Jewish Bibles. That's typical. It's not, you know, always the case, but it's typically the case. It follows Proverbs and precedes the Song of Solomon in Jewish Bibles. So the figure of Ruth has come down in Jewish tradition to be associated with both the woman of noble character, a.k.a. the woman of worth, in chapter, I'll read that verse to you in a moment, chapter 3, verse 11. She's associated with the woman of worth or the woman of noble character of Proverbs, but also the bride in the Song of Solomon, end quote. So what does this mean here? Well, first off, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, Boaz is talking to her. Uh, we'll get to the whole story next lesson. But at one point he says here, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of worth. 
Okay, beautiful. I mean, what a compliment. That's why I've named this Bible study, She's a Woman of Worth. But it says, you are a woman of worth, a.k.a. man, you're a great catch. <laughs> She's a great catch. Maybe we could subtitle it that way. A woman, a great, or sorry, Ruth a great catch, right? So she's a great catch, but that line there is very much connected with Proverbs 31 verses 10 and following, 10 through 31, that describes very famously the woman of noble character or the good or the righteous wife. So I want to read this to you because as you, if you can have Proverbs 31 in your brain, when you read the story of Ruth, what you're going to see is that Ruth is the embodiment. She's like, she lives up to the hype, right? She lives up to the characterization here of the righteous woman. So I'm going to try to refrain myself from giving a whole bunch of commentary. There's commentary about Mary here, or I should say typology about Mary in here as well, because uh, Mary ultimately is the woman of worth, right? She is the woman of the righteous woman, the, the, the good wife of St. Joseph. Mary is the perfect fulfillment, but all Jewish women, I would even argue all Christian women would aspire to this. There, is, there are a lot of jokes out there uh, by women, that this is an impossible standard, right? How can anyone live up to this standard? And just like, you know, the scripture sets standards for men and women, both for husbands, wives, and fathers and mothers, where we are striving for holiness, we're striving for righteousness to be hardworking, industrious, faithful, trustworthy, uh, loving and considerate, and um, full of love of, the, of God and all the rest of it. So with that, let me just zip it here, and I'm going to read to you Proverbs 31, verse 10 and following. And then the point is, in the canon of the, Jewish, of the Jewish scriptures, Ruth follows after it as the example of this chapter. You see? So let me read it. Verse 10. Who can find a good wife? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. He does, she does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and tasks for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She clothes her loins with strength and makes, and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold to the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes herself coverings. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Isn't that an awesome passage? That is a, that's a beautiful passage. Yes, it's a high standard for sure, but it's describing, like I said, a woman who is uh, filled with faith of God and obedience to God, and she serves her family, and she works hard, and she's humble, and she's gentle, yet she's strong as well, and all of these virtues. So again, I repeat, imagine reading this, and then you flip the page, and boom, there's Ruth. She is the woman, the, the, the good wife that Boaz found. Boaz found 
the good wife. And she exemplifies all of these virtues. And we'll touch upon some of those as we go through chapters 1 through 4, the story of Ruth in the next lesson. She is hardworking and industrious. She is gentle. She is strong. She is faithful. In fact, her whole conversion to Yahweh is, is incredibly beautiful. And so on and so forth. So it's incredible. So this is the first reason now why Ruth is in the Ketuvim, because she is the woman of worth. She is the good wife. And then get this, it's not over yet, right? Because next, then after Ruth comes the Song of Solomon. Now, everybody knows the Song of Solomon is like the romance novel of the Old Testament. It has very you know, poetic and erotic imagery of a love between a man and a woman. And it's incredibly beautiful. I can't get into it all. It's all very metaphorical and analogous. Uh, yes, it has multiple meanings, the love of a man and a woman, but you've also got the love of God and his people. There's all kinds of imagery with... Uh, Jerusalem as the great city and, and all these types of things. But Song of Solomon is famous because it has the great pickup lines of the Old Testament, <laughs> the great pickup lines of, of the ancient world, like, oh, my lady, your hair is like a flock of gazelles and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, nowadays those pickup lines wouldn't work, but then they, they apparently did. Um, but it's very, it's very analogous. It's very beautiful. Well, get this. The Song of Solomon follows on the heels of Ruth and the story of how Ruth and Boaz, a man and a woman, have a righteous, holy marriage, and they become the ancestors of David and ultimately of Jesus. So this is really, really cool because the romance between Ruth and Boaz is the background for the marital themes of Solomon, the Song of Solomon, but more than just the themes between, of the love between a man and a woman, but more, the greater than that, it's the love between God and Israel. Boaz is a type of God, and Israel, or I should say Ruth, is a type of Israel. God is exemplified or personified by Boaz and Israel by Ruth. And more than that, from a Christian perspective then, it's typology of Jesus and the church. Boaz is a type of Christ, and Ruth is a type of the church. And I'll talk a lot more about that as we get to the end of this lesson, but it's really phenomenal, fun, fun stuff to be like, wow, this is not just a love story of a man and a woman. This is all typological between God and his people and Jesus and his church. And that is what the Song of Solomon is all about. It's the love of God and his, and his people primarily. Right? That would probably, I would argue, be the, the literal sense of scripture is not the love between a man and a woman. It's the love between God and his people, ultimately Jesus and his church. Okay. So that is the fun stuff about the placement in the canon. On the one hand, really practically speaking, in Christian Bibles, uh, you've got the continuation of the story, the historical context. Great, Ruth is set in the period of the Judges, and she's the ancestor of King David, and he's anointed king in the books of Samuel. Terrific. But in the Jewish canon, it's super awesome to see that, again, Ruth is read at Pentecost, but more than that, she's the embodiment of the righteous woman, the woman of worth in Proverbs 31, and she then becomes the model for understanding the Song of Solomon. Isn't that awesome? So hopefully you followed all of that because uh, that, that makes it exciting then to go read. In fact, what you should probably do is reread Proverbs 31, read Ruth, and then, you, of course, we'll have Bible study uh, for the next lesson. And then you go and you read Song of Solomon. All right, that would be, that would be a pretty cool journey. All righty, let's move on now. Roman numeral four, let's look at structure. Now, there are two structures to consider. The first is really straightforward. This would be a geog the structure is organized across geographical terms, and it's really the structure is based around the location of Bethlehem. You know, everything about this book is pro Bethlehem, pro Judah, pro David. That's one of the first main themes we'll talk about in about ten minutes here. So it's pro Bethlehem, and so everything revolves around Bethlehem. 
You know, so chapter one is leaving Bethlehem, going to Moab, then coming back to Bethlehem. That's an exile. I'll talk about that in the next lesson. That's exile imagery, leaving the promised land, going abroad into exile, then coming back to the promised land. That's going to be foreshadowing. Well, that, is all, that will all foreshadow the Babylonian exile. So in any case, number two, you're, the setting is in a field in Bethlehem. And then number three, chapter three, you've got the threshing floor in Bethlehem. And then chapter four is the gate at Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is, is central in all of this because that's where David comes from. Remember, Bethlehem means the house of bread. So you're supposed to have this image of an abundance of food, an abundance of bread. That's actually important for chapter one, verse one to talk about next time. All right, the second structure that you could look at is according to a literary chiasm. Now, you find this structure in the Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. I always recommend for you. And what you find is this, this chiastic structure here. Remember, a chiastic structure is you go down a particular pattern, uh, certain steps along a staircase, so to speak, A, B, C, D, and then you're going to go back down the staircase, uh, C, B, A. So you've got A and A prime match a theme, B and B prime match a theme, C and C prime match a theme, and then D uh, is, the, is the central point. Like that is, it's like a big old sandwich, right? You got your pieces of bread and then inside of your bread, you got cheese on both sides and then you got salami on both sides and right in the middle is the tomato. And the tomato is the most important thing about the sandwich, okay? Silly, stupid analogy, but it's a visual for you, okay? Now, this structure is interesting. So the A's match. So the book opens up with the line or the lineage, you could say, of Elimelech. His name means my God is king. We'll talk more about that in chapter one. But then it ends, A prime is a parallel where it talks about the line or the lineage of Boab, specifically the lineage leading up to King David, God's chosen king, right? So Elimelech means God is my king. Well, David is God's chosen king. So there's the parallels. B is all about Naomi and her daughters-in-law. They're in exile and they lack everything because they're widows and therefore they're vulnerable in that society. They have no family to protect them. Uh, they have no money. Uh, so they're lacking everything. Well, B prime uh, in chapter four, the parallel is that Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, they're back in the promised land. They're back in Bethlehem and they lack nothing. They're, they're, they're full and they're joyful and grateful. God has showered blessings upon them. Okay. So then go back up to C. Uh, C is the courtship of really, I would say the attraction of Boaz and Ruth, because it's all chapter two. They're in the, the, the field. They're just, you know, they're looking at each other. It's like, wow, you know, he's handsome and, you know, she's pretty and wow, she's virtuous. He's generous and back and so on. It's, it's, it's attraction really more than courtship. That's just a small little alteration I would probably make. Uh, but the parallel is the marriage of Boaz and Ruth in chapter four. But right in the middle, my friend, I want to talk a little bit about this. Right in the middle is Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. This is the great, really colorful, really kind of scandalous story of how Ruth and Boaz make it clear to each other, like, yeah, we need to get married. We need to tie the knot, okay? Now, there's a lot, of, you know what, I'm, I'm going to decide this. I'm going to talk about this structure. I'm going to come full circle to the structure after we discuss the typology of Boaz and Ruth, because I have a personal theory about this. It's not in your Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. Um, when, you, when you meditate on chiastic structures like this, you should always, as a student of Scripture, be thinking, why is this important? You should always be asking that about everything in Scripture, but wh what's the message? What's the lesson? Why is Boaz and Ruth at the threshing floor in chapter 3 the central part of this entire structure? What's happening here? Okay. Now, I'm going to keep you on tenterhooks here, keep the suspense going. Let me come back to that after we discuss the typology of Boaz and Ruth, okay? It'll make more sense, I believe. 
So hold on to that, put a pin in it. We're going to come back.